0: In coming to offer the reflections this evening, I find myself having to bow to the inevitability of life's journey in regard to the requirement for using glasses to be able to reference my notes. Uh, And sometimes it seems like my eyes work well enough to not require them, and other times, although they're becoming more and more the case. I, I, I need that form of support and it's a curious thing, isn't it? As our bodies go through the journey that they go through, that they become different than they were and in ways that mean sometimes less amenable to what we might wish them to be able to produce or Feel like or function as. I think I mentioned Ajahn Buddhadasa yesterday at some point, a teacher in Thailand who was one of the teachers of one of my teachers, and so although I didn't know him personally, I feel a strong connection to him. And he appar- apparently, when he would give his uh, reflections, as you know, a tradition and our, our sort of lineages come and give some teaching he, he would often begin saying sort of saluting everyone greetings to uh, my brothers and sisters and birth aging sickness and death and it's kind of like ooh, that's Santa kind it's sort of like quite a challenging way to be addressed that uh, when I see my eyes slowly deteriorating or see, am aware of it, it it? oh, yeah, this is part of what it means to be a human being, to have a body that we all have in various states of functionality, which there's some degree or we wouldn't be here, Um, and dysfunctionality, which is pretty much inevitable and for most of us, ongoing. And we come into a situation like this. It's quite natural that we come with a certain hope, perhaps it's a bit of a sort of a dream or a fantasy, that a retreat would be a linear movement, a sort of a journey from pain and chaos and confusion to ease and clarity and peace and from struggle and suffering to awakening, enlightenment, that we just see a clear, straight and swift trajectory in this regard. And uh, I think you've probably got the idea that it's not entirely like that. We can learn how the process of our life is conditioned. What contributes to deepening well-being? what allows us to recognize and transform the way we respond to experience. And this makes a profound difference to the quality of our life, even while it doesn't give us control over what actually happens, because that's not something that's given to us. One of the things we encounter, we notice as we practice is the ways and the places in which there's a certain holding, contraction, tightness, hardening that we find in our body at times, that we find equally in our heart and our mind, places of fixedness, of rigidity, of harshness, of hardness. And these don't arise by accident. This is something that happens in the way we endeavor to handle what it means to be human beings, to be subject to the life of our vulnerable human bodies and our vulnerable human hearts. And I find it sometimes useful to contemplate how it all began. You know, we often kind of wonder: so, so where did it start? You know, what was the cause of these particular conditions? We might look at what happened in our sort of earlier life or our families. And the interesting thing is, it started way before all of that. It started way before anything we remember. And the story, as far as science best understands it, and I don't know if it's absolutely true, but you know, the earliest life forms were single-celled organisms floating around in the soup of the ocean. And being single-celled, they just had a little membrane. That So they're just a little sort of bubble of juice inside a very large body of liquid. It's pretty much what they were. This is maybe a, a scientist might want to adjust that a little bit. But the nature of the experience is that this This membrane is permeable, it has to be, to allow things to get in, like food. And when there's something nourishing, the little cell has to, this little organism has to kind of open and expand, allow the pores in the membrane to be open and allow in the nourishment in the food that it needs, that it relies on, that it depends upon. We know this because single-celled organisms today are much the same. And if it encounters something that's dangerous, that's maybe toxic to it, it's got to contract and tighten and close up all those little pores, those little holes in the membrane. And it tightens to try and close the little holes so nothing bad gets in, because it might be fatal. And if we notice what actually happens in our bodies, it has a very direct parallel with this. Because what we are is, you know, some... 10 billion cells of human tissue or something you know, approximately like that all of which respond in this way to a sense of threat or danger by tightening and contracting and that equally respond to a sense of support of nourishment or of kindness by opening, by relaxing, by softening this mechanism as a process it's something that we can notice and feel. So much of what we encounter when we come to practice is the impact and the effect and the, in a way the, the amplification of this very simple primary functional tendency that cells and single-celled organisms have and had. And what we notice is this tendency to to close, to tighten, to harden. It's an attempt to block out. It's an attempt to keep at a distance and keep safe from that which we feel threatened by. And when we come into practice, a lot of what's challenging, what's uncomfortable for us is feeling those places of hardening, of density, of solidification. And one way we could understand the process of what we're engaging in is in a way coming back to the sensitivity, coming back to the openness of what is possible for us as human beings. We're very sensitive. We feel things deeply. We're touched, we're impacted. It's not it's not easy to be a human being, to be sentient. But what happens in the in the kind of hardening and the tightening and the solidifying of the very texture, not just of our tissues, but of our, our heart and mind, is that in trying to protect against that which we find threatening, difficult, painful, or scary what happens is we actually lose our sensitivity. We lose our ability to be touched by what is what is bright, what is beautiful, what is uplifting, what is sweet. And we don't quite realize or notice that. There's just a sense that there's something, and I, I spoke of this last night, If something's missing or something's not quite right. And it's both misleading in one sense and that we think there's something else that should be happening but at another level what's true in that is that we we recognize we feel the loss of contact we feel the loss of sensitivity the loss of the profound nourishment and sweetness that is possible to be known in the condition of openness and sensitivity And part of what happens when we practice, and this happens really whether we like it or not, and often actually we don't particularly like it initially at least, is that coming into contact with our experience, the way we're being invited to, to actually let ourselves feel, let ourselves inhabit the bodily experience. And notice what's going on as we breathe, as we walk, as we stand and sit and move that process of coming back into contact with our experience has a, has a tenderizing effect. The consciously inhabiting of our experience, like it brings moisture into, a, into an environment that is otherwise arid or dry. And in that, without life, without its fullness of experience, And so we might come thinking that we kind of somehow want to get away from or come to the end of the difficult areas of our experience. And there's something, of course, completely understandable about that. But the, the, the way that might be, the way that can come to be for us is often quite different than what we would have imagined. It's not so much that we're here to escape what is difficult. Because in fact, difficulty is woven into the nature of experience, just as is sweetness and beauty. To actually find what allows us to go more deeply, to feel more fully, to inhabit more unconditionally the field of our experience because when we harden when we withdraw when we push away we actually become enclosed in a in a in a field that is without the nourishment that we need of contact of sensitivity of being deeply touched there's a way in which our practice asks us to become vulnerable to not just what we might wish for, but equally that which we are challenged by. It was many years ago now, but I still remember this experience I had very vividly, and some of you have probably heard me share it before, but I was teaching a retreat in a a retreat center in Massachusetts that uh, Insight Meditation Society in the summer one year and I went for a walk down to the lake near the, near the retreat centre that's in the woods and I came acro- across as I was walking on the path I saw this large snake on the path and I stopped dead still kind of scared and excited I come from New Zealand we don't have any snakes in New Zealand it's, it's, a, it's not a thing Um. I was fascinated and I was a bit worried because this looked like a really big snake. But I was really curious so I took a step forward and got close. And I was thinking as I was doing this, there's all these stories in the Buddhist teaching about what happens if you confuse a rope with a snake. In which case you can get in trouble or you confuse a snake with a rope and then you can feel a bit silly. But anyway, this was going on. And then as I got closer, I was, oh, wow, it's a snake skin. There wasn't a snake in it. It was the skin of a snake. And it made me wonder. I thought, what's going on here? Of course, I knew what was going on. It's a snake skin. But the actual, where my mind went with it was, a snake had to get out of its skin. You you know how it is for snakes, I'm guessing. This isn't supposed to be a biology lesson, but... um, Snakes have this protective scales, skin, around them, and it's hard, and it's dense, and it's protective, but by that very nature, it can't expand. And in order for a snake to grow, it has to shed its skin. If it doesn't shed its skin, it dies. And I thought, so what's it like when it comes out? Because it it probably comes out kind of, I don't know, pink and juicy or something like that. It, it can't come out with another whole hard um, set of scales and skin on it because that wouldn't be any bigger than the previous one if it was inside it. It's got to come out somehow vulnerable. And it, it really touched me, the sense of what is it to live in a way in which you actually have to strip off the defences you've built in order to grow. And you understand, and of course, for a snake it's just what they do, you know, you don't want to encounter an eagle at that particular point. But you so you do it somewhere in the woods. And what it's like for us as human beings to see, oh, what what is it that we've bound ourselves in or wrapped ourselves with that maybe was for our protection? but ultimately comes to limit us and requires us to to release ourselves from this and to to come into our experience with an openness with a vulnerability in which the sensitivity of our humanity is exposed of course it's important to do this gently to take care with that process if we feel particularly sensitive but at the same time to understand that this is the trajectory for us sometimes of course we need to we need to step back from that process and to see what actually will provide some care around it and one of the one of the qualities that we bring into the process the sense of of kindness. It's almost like the balm that we can place in contact with that sensitivity, that sense of, ah, oh, okay. So this isn't something that we judge or blame or reject. It's ah, like, oh, okay. Can I care for this? Can I care for this deeply, even though it's scary to me or difficult to me? Giving attention to our body is a radical transformative act. Sustaining that attention to our body is something that offers us a gateway and a pathway to something precious. What's interesting is it's hard for us to be present in our bodies. It seems like we've said, you know, a straightforward thing we should be able to, we think, pay attention, but we keep finding our attention going elsewhere. Initially, it's because we start to encounter the places in our experience that are not comfortable for us we experience those places of pain, of discomfort, of contraction, of numbness or of some kind of disconnect that we we move away from. We don't always necessarily recognize that as what's happening. We just find we've gone somewhere more interesting or somewhere more useful in our mind. Coming in to the body, we start to notice that one of the reasons... We're in our head so much, in our thoughts so much. is because there's discomfort in the body at times. Not only, but at times and sometimes considerably. And we've not yet found a willingness to meet that, to open to that, to include that as we learn to be more in our body, as we practice this, and it takes practice, it takes time, we just keep just gently inviting us, of, okay, can I come back into contact with this? Can I, can I bring some kindness into this encounter? Can I do this with a sense of caring and sensitivity? We start to find it actually offers an immense Pleasure. That the body, when we're deeply inhabiting it, starts to become something where we would actually wish to be here. As it begins to open, as the patterns and the regions of contraction start to soften, it actually starts to call and speak to us of something that we perhaps have known but forgotten. And what it means to deeply abide in the sensitivity of our humanity. And so we notice this process of hardening and tightening. And it's interesting how we encounter it in so many ways and places in practice. Sometimes the mind tightens around, it's got to be like this, it must not be like that in relationship to our experience or to our anticipated experience. Sometimes we notice the heart hardening in a place of anger, reactivity, judgment or blame towards others, towards ourselves. And to see how that mechanism, that movement, an attempt to, to somehow defend or protect ourselves from something we find challenging or painful Can we let ourselves feel these places in our body, our heart and our mind? Because the curious thing about them is that our attention is drawn to them. We find our attention goes there and we mostly say, I don't want to be here, I want to be somewhere else. When I was travelling in in Asia where I first encountered meditation teachings and the Buddha, dharma i'd actually gone to india initially because i wanted to to visit to in fact meet my grandmother who's uh, from Calcutta, and who i didn't ever meet in my younger life growing up in new zealand Um, i knew i had this indian grandmother living in a little little place in Calcutta, but she never came to india and i sorry she never came to new zealand and i'd never even spoken to her or exchanged a a message with her so I, i went i went to to india to to visit her and um, while I was there in Calcutta, I, I spent some time with a, um, a street clinic run, called Calcutta Rescue, run by and funded by Westerners, providing medical care to the, to the poor people living on the streets in Calcutta. And amongst, other th- amongst the other things that I, I learned there, one thing stood out, struck me incredibly. We, we had um, people coming for, for treatment for leprosy. And I, I sort of, you know, I don't know what your response is, but I know then, and still a little bit now, my association with leprosy was like, Ugh! This, this, this sort of quite horrific, disfiguring disease. And I always thought that leprosy made parts of your body fall off. And it's not true. Leprosy, I learned from the medical staff, I was unqual- unqualified medically, I was just helping with sort of simple tasks and the... The charitable work there. Um, I, I learned from one of the, the medical people, leprosy actually just kills the nerve tissue, particularly in the in the extremities, and so people cut themselves or burn themselves, and poor people who don't have any understanding about infection and uh, cleaning the wound. If you cut yourself or burn yourself, it gets infected, and eventually tissue dies and there's the loss and disfigurement of limbs or, or digits or lips. And it really made me think, because it was like the thing that would most improve the life of a leper. Or a leper, that's the wrong word really, isn't it? Someone who's afflicted by leprosy. A human being afflicted by leprosy. Their experience would be most beneficially improved if they could feel pain because the inability to feel it means we can't actually take care of the signal it's giving. And and pain has this very simple thing. It says pay attention here. We go, "No, no, no, I don't like you." But it says pay attention here, very clearly. When we can turn towards that experience with kindness and with care to see what's needed. Sometimes, of course, it's just we just need to notice. Ah, oh, okay. This this is uncomfortable. This is painful. This is difficult. To see, can I soften? Can I release that habitual tendency to tighten and contract? Because that very, it's like sometimes something is tight and squeezed, and then we squeeze it as if that would make it go away, contracting around the pain by squeezing it. It doesn't help. But it's really hard for us not to do it because we think that's how you deal with things like that. Not think consciously, but that's what our biological evolutionary history has taught us to do. It's dangerous, it's scary, tighten up. And so consciously responding to those contractions, those places we find where there's holding and tightness, with a softening, with a breathing out, and in the out-breath there's a natural sense of releasing, relaxing, softening that we can sometimes connect with that allows the possibility of opening and understanding of course that there are times when what's been given us the signal of pain is saying actually no something needs to be done. It's not just a case of being with it or softening around it. Actually it's a really good time to say maybe I need to change my posture and you know when I first came to meditation our teachers the first you know the Westerners who had teachers from Asia, many of their Asian teachers had grown up, as some of mine had, sitting cross-legged on the floor all their life. That's how they did it. Actually, when I was at primary school, we sat cross-legged on the floor too. I don't know if anyone else had that experience. And if we'd stayed there, probably it would be quite easy to sit cross-legged on the floor. But we got put in chairs by the time we turned eight or whatever it was, or seven. But someone who's grown up, So it's it's no judgment of that. Someone who's grown up sitting cross-legged on the floor, actually pretty much everything that's painful that happens from sitting down is not dangerous or harmful. So many of us were told, just sit there. Don't worry about the pain. Just be with the sensations. And that sometimes is really helpful. But sometimes it's a really bad idea. Because the body gets to a point where it says, actually, I can't do this anymore. And I need you to listen to that sensation and change your posture. So the instruction you hear here is, yes, you can sometimes work with it, be with it. Sometimes, actually, no, change the posture or move your attention away. Similarly, with regard to difficult emotional territories we encounter, sometimes it's really helpful to move towards, to see, can I soften? Can I open? Can I feel where in my body? What is this like? Other times we might notice, oh, actually this this is more than I can usefully handle or engage with here. And it might be more helpful to move my attention away, to find some ground, to find a sense of where is there maybe more ease or just simple neutrality in the body or in the field of experience. Sometimes to move the body as a way of helping with the intensity of emotional engagement that we might encounter. So it's not saying that there's one response every time. It's but to pause and to see if I come into contact with this rather than just react to it by thinking I've got to kind of get rid of it or I've got to somehow push away or equally it could just become a reaction. I've got to go into it. That too equally isn't necessarily always what's helpful. So that sense of just, oh, can I... Can I widen? Can I soften? Just feeling what it's like as you breathe out and that possibility of allowing the attention to soften around the experience and then to see what's useful here, what's possible here. And we see that our human experience includes such a range of things. The sweetness and delight of contact with something dear or beloved to us or someone. How lovely that can be. A place or a person or a situation that we value, that's precious. How sweetly that can touch us. And how Painful it can be when we feel judged or criticized, when we feel or have actually been attacked in some way or form, or when we feel the loss of contact with something we love or the the loss of someone we love. The Buddha spoke of this again and again and again as a foundation for understanding both what it is to be a human being and what makes sense in terms of practice, spiritual practice. He spoke about birth, aging, sickness, and death, these features of human existence. And I always struck this, this was the way I first heard that teaching birth, aging, sickness, death. And I would always go, hmm you know, there's something made me wonder because birth, yeah, ageing, yeah, sickness, but surely I got sick long before I noticed I was ageing, you know. I can remember having the flu when I was sort of eight or nine years old. I don't think I was ageing then. I was still kind of, you know, really in the early thing and it was really horrible, but surely the Buddha would have got them in the right order. He's He seems a remarkably organized and sort of logical, methodical mind if you, you look at his body of teachings. And I thought, why is it in that order? And then... Later on I encountered a, a different translation, which was birth, aging, decay, and death. It's like, ah, okay, I see how that goes now. So like, sickness is something we could say where we might get better from it. Decay is a kind of sickness that we don't get better from. And it's like that, oh yeah, so my, my eyes are decaying. Various other parts, I won't go into it. Likewise. And it's like, oh wow, Okay. Yeah, that's that's not easy, is it? And the Buddha spoke also, he said he talked about sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. It's like, ooh, wow, okay, yeah, I can recognize all of those from times in my life. And You know, I I think I alluded to something of this nature yesterday. You know, we we don't advertise that on the retreat description. Come along, birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, despair. You too can experience this. You know, we probably wouldn't have such a long waiting list for the course, would we? But it's in this. And yet naming it, seeing that, I remember when first hearing this teaching, like, oh, what a relief. No, because I thought it was great that suddenly this was what was going on, but starting to sense, oh my gosh, okay, it's not just me. It's not just my experience. It's one of the things that's so powerful, I think, and palpable at times in the, in the small group meetings when we hear from each other and we hear each other's experience and journey. And they might be quite different in some way to our own. Or it may be similar in certain ways. But the underlying threads of what it is like to be a human being start to stand out to us in their commonality, in the sharedness of this. And really getting it This is part of what it means to be alive. Our world often gives us the message and it's part of the the way our and I would say remarkably unfortunate way that our culture kind of predisposes us to a certain kind of attitude to ourselves. In the in the image and the story that's given that, you know, if you live your life perfectly you can have a perfect life untouched by these difficult things and the kind of images that are presented to us through the media and through the narratives of our culture of success and perfection and idealized imagery of human experience and we somehow are left with the conclusion that that which is difficult or hard to bear in our life, is somehow because we've done it wrong. Or maybe because someone else has messed up in some way. And of course, we and others will have made mistakes in our lives. We do, inevitably. But that's not why we experience these things. It's just in the fabric, in the nature of life. And if you doubt that, and I can imagine why one might doubt it, will think, well, no, 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 surely it was because of this and because of that and because of the other thing. The interesting thing is that every other person, if you speak to them, you'll find that they had a different life than yours and they also had some of that. That's kind of universal. And when I think about it, just at this level, we can frame it. If you love something or someone in this world, in your life, at some point you'll be parted from them or parted from that thing that you love through accident, through intentional choice through death, through random circumstance if we love something or someone at some point we'll be parted from that or from them and this will be grievous, this will be difficult this will be painful there will be sorrow, distress how else could that be if we loved them or loved that thing? And if you don't love something or someone in this world, in your life, that will be painful. That will be grievous. That How else could that be to not love? I can't see a third option. If you have got one, please feel free to leave me a note or let me know. But it's like if we love we will experience loss. If we don't love, that is a loss in itself. Huh. Huh. Okay. So what that tells me is that the fact that there is this difficult dimension to experience, to life, that we can speak of as dukkha, the word the Buddha used, that which is hard to bear. One dimension of that is not because we've done something wrong. It's universal. And it means there's not something wrong with me. It's not my failure that I've experienced this. And so we might look around and realize that we're sitting together amongst others with whom we share this. As Sajjan Buddhadasa would say, Our brothers and sisters, our siblings of all genders in birth, aging, sickness, and death. And I find it a remarkably tender thing to just contemplate that. You don't have to look around and look into it, you could if you wanted, but just to think, oh gosh, we share this. This is part of what it means to be human beings. And the experience doesn't necessarily become less tender or less touching, but we feel that it doesn't separate us or hold us apart from each other when we start to understand it in this way. It's less personal in the sense of separating or differentiating or excluding and holding us apart. And the very tenderness of it becomes something that we recognize as shared, It requires an immense degree of courage. There's something profoundly noble and beautiful and blessed about being willing to sit in the midst of our life and be touched by it, to not turn away, to not move away. And when we notice ourselves habitually and reactively turning away or moving away, to come back. In a sense, coming back, returning again and again to the heart of our life. And being willing to be touched by it. Being willing to feel it. And sometimes to ask, what does this need? What can I offer to this? Often we come into, into life and into experience kind of looking, well what can it give me? Well this isn't giving me something I want, it hurts, yeah. Mm. But maybe the question isn't what can this give me? maybe the question is what can i give this what can i offer here such as the, the just giving of attention and space the bringing of kindness too the bringing of curiosity and interest too can i offer this to my experience Sorry, I probably should have put the mic on after I swallowed that. But I guess you get to hear what goes on sometimes. And it's a bit like that with ourselves. We don't always want to hear everything that goes on in here. And we certainly don't want to broadcast it to everybody else. But in a certain way, when we can allow that to be the case, there's, there's something, oh, again, that connects us. I'm I, just remembering how um, Joseph Joseph Goldstein would, was once uh, giving a talk and he, he was reflecting he's one of the senior teachers of this community and uh, the, one of the founders of Insight Meditation Society the centre in Massachusetts that I, I spoke of earlier and he he was saying how imagine what it would be like if our thoughts were projected onto the scr- onto a screen behind us and everybody else could see them you know And it's like, oh my gosh, how would that be for us? You know, he said, well, people wouldn't come to my retreats, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, But with a remarkable, beautiful humility, incredibly wise and, uh, you know, deep practitioner. Um, But at the same time, interestingly, if we all saw everybody's thoughts projected onto a screen, not just mine, but everyone here, if all of our thoughts were on a screen behind us right now for all of us to see probably what we'd look at and see is, oh my gosh, yeah, I've had most of those. And all the ones that I had that I felt so bad about, everyone else has had them too. Because they're not ours. We didn't start them. We didn't think of them for the first time. Very few of the thoughts we've had have been original. I guarantee you this. But check and see. How many of them do we learn from someone else, hear from someone else, who heard them from someone else? who pass them on without realizing it so turning towards coming back into our experience allows it to soften and to open it actually needs that quality of attention which is in a sense it's like the moisture that brings fluidity that brings malleability to our experience, that the, 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 the moving away into the thinking about something else, somewhere else, past, future, other, what we're left with is an experience that feels like solidified or congealed and really, really uncomfortable to inhabit. As we come into it more and more, and it's the sense of returning, of coming back to our, our home ground, as inhabiting our, our own heart, And our life and the heart, not just the literally physical heart or the emotional centre, but the the, at the core of our life is the sensitivity that we feel and the responsiveness that arises with it. As we come into, as we start to get to know it, as we see that actually it asks not to be left alone, but to be felt, to be known, to be inhabited. And with the difficult stuff, to see, you know, if it needs space, we can give it space. It doesn't mean we have to crowd up against it. It's like sometimes if we're feeling distressed, we might like a friend to sort of be nearby but not too close. And not have to ask us too many questions. Our hearts and bodies are like that too sometimes. And what we start to see is that we can actually connect with even that which is challenging and difficult. That the the deeper cost or the impact of difficult experience is that we become disconnected. We find ourselves pushing it away. But the nature of pushing away, it's like we're pushing away the whole fabric of life. And it's in fact, weird. it's like as if you could imagine if one pushed on the earth to try and move the earth away what would happen? it's a lot bigger than we are so actually we would get pushed away if it wasn't for gravity holding us here and in that often the fear is that if I don't push it away I'll somehow get stuck with it it'll come it'll stay it'll be what dominates it'll be the only thing And interestingly, it's the very act of pushing away that solidifies and freezes and stops the experience being able to move. Because the nature of experience is in motion. Everything is moving and fluid in its natural state. When we give it space, We have to take the risk that initially it might seem to get bigger or be closer but giving it space allows it to move and as it can move, something in our heart moves too. Wendell Berry writes, he says I go amongst trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings and I hear its song. To hear the song of our life, the tenderness, the sensitivity and the beauty it may offer us, we need to find and to have the willingness and the nobility, the courage to stand close where it may not always be easy to know that we have permission to take a step back or two if needed but nonetheless turning towards coming back into as we can the nature of experience is fluid it becomes stuck due to our resistance and the very nature of our experience of what it is to be a human being is something permeable, something that is touched. When we resist, what happens is we don't allow it to pass through. And it kind of becomes congested. As we become able to allow ourselves to be touched but not to take hold of, not to push away, the very nature of experience as a fluid dynamic medium is allowed to express that nature and what we start to experience is a depth of connection with it that touches us deeply and it's sometimes something we notice when just walking outside or sitting quietly in a moment not necessarily in the formal meditation but maybe where we feel we have a sense of something that's alive, that's true, that's immediate, that's intimate, that isn't necessarily easily expressible, but that is nonetheless recognisable. And in that, the sense of being separate from and apart from life, as if somehow it was something happening to us, Or that we were doing starts to soften and break down. We start to sense and recognize that in that returning to the heart, in that coming back into contact with the sensitivity, the vulnerability, the openness, and the not in our controlness of life, as we come into this the sense of our life opens up into something that we start to sense as a vastness, as a depth, as a ground as an openness to us that our heart can rest in that our life can rest in And that the range and field of experience we encounter of what it is to be a human being in its sweetness and beauty, in its tenderness and at times challenging expressions does not bind us or define us. It simply offers us the opportunity to to know what it is to be alive and awake. To be touched by each moment and yet not bound or defined by it. And in this the heart comes to rest. In this there's a natural responsiveness and care and a, and a movement to offer what we can, to offer what we can to our life, to our self, to our heart, our body, our world. And this really is the invitation and possibility of our practice. Let's sit quietly for a moment or two together to finish. And may we all in our practice here together come to rest deeply in the sensitivity of our human hearts and come to know the vastness, the openness and the blessedness of this life that we are part of. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, and for the well-being of all that lives and all that is.